Hey there, I'm Scott Mitchell, the editor of Schwartz Media's daily news show, 7am. This is The Weekend Read. Every fortnight on the show, we feature some of the best long-form journalism in Australia, read to you by the people who wrote it. Today on the show, to mark the 200th edition of The Monthly, we have something special. Editor of The Monthly, Michael Williams, reading a piece by the late Mungo McCullum from the debut issue nearly 20 years ago. Mungo was a totally unique character of Australian journalism, once described by Gough Whitlam as a tall, bearded descendant of lunatic aristocrats. Mungo could deftly bounce from the funny and odd to the great stories and issues of our times. We very much hope you enjoy us revisiting his first essay for the monthly, From Nation to Now. Michael will read Mungo McCullum's piece after a short conversation. Michael, I want to start by talking about a very important milestone for the monthly, 200 issues of the magazine. It's gone through a lot of different phases. It's been this insurgent magazine to a home of Australia's greatest writers and also a leader in writing that matters in federal politics. Tell me a bit about how you look back at the magazine and its many iterations. It's a real privilege to have come on board as editor for this milestone. And it's funny, when we think about churn in media, we tend to be talking about churn in subject matter, the way in which the 24-hour news cycle means stuff comes and goes and is a little bit relentless. But if you think about it, churn in platforms, churn in mastheads is also something we've become very accustomed to, particularly in recent years. You know, that favourite website that you go to every day, uh, that magazine, that newspaper, whether it's a change of editor, a change of proprietor, or the completely going out of business, we get used to our patterns as media consumers changing. And any one publication that goes the distance of 200 issues, and in particular, a kind of august print magazine at a time when print is struggling, seems to me to be a pretty significant thing to be a part of. And looking back at the history of the monthly, the kind of 18 or so years over which those 200 issues have been published, what you see is a picture of a magazine that not only reflects the culture into which it belongs, but it shapes it. And any favourite pieces that you found diving into those archives? What did what were the things that surprised you looking back at the full 200? Look, and I, I say this with love, but looking back, the first surprise was how absolutely batshit crazy it was in the early years. And I think you kind of had to be, like in terms of carving an identity. When the monthly started, the bulletin was still a regular fixture. There were lots of examples of kind of newsy magazines that had come and gone. And the monthly came out of the gate... And committed to great writing and great writers, and you can see that from that very first roll call, but also with this pugnacious sense of itself. You know, we're not just going to sound like or look like everyone else. And so some, frankly, in hindsight, pretty eclectic choices were made. You know, the first issue had this gold cover with Sophie Lee, the TV personality on the front. No one uh, I can speak to can really uh, give a definitive answer to what the thinking behind having Sophie Lee on the front was. The look on her face is one of confusion about why she's on the front of the monthly, and yet there she is. You know, those kind of slightly left of centre, uh, slightly batty choices, I think, made the magazine in its earliest days a thing that you didn't want to miss out on because you wanted to see what might happen because it could be anything. Fantastic. And you've picked an essay that's a few years back in the archives, that's from those early days, from Mungo McCallum. And it's about magazines, a bit of a 
critical and sometimes acid-tongued love letter to them. Can you tell me a bit about why you picked it? Look, for a number of reasons. It was from that very first issue, the Sophie Lee issue, which if you can get your hands on, commemorative edition now, you know, worth its weight in gold. Um, But it was um, May 2005 and the magazine was coming together. In that very first issue, it included people like Don Watson, like Helen Garner, uh, like Margaret Simons, all of whom appear in the 200th issue this June staples of uh, the Australian literary scene. And one of those staples of that scene and journalistic scene was Mungo McCallum. When I started in the role at the magazine, one of the things that surprised me very quickly, and it probably shouldn't have, is that in that monthly cycle, almost inevitably each month since I've started, there's been the loss of a kind of figure of the intellectual or cultural scene in Australia. It turns out mortality is a thing and people die. And it had crossed my mind before, but it really uh, focused my mind on that, having to think about how to pay tribute to these figures who went, whether it was kind of Jack Charles or Dr. Yunapingu or, uh, you know, in the months after uh, I started Frank Morehouse, Olivia Newton-John, you know, uh, there were these figures who had defined the culture who were dying. And what I found being the editor of a magazine like this is so many of them had intersected with the magazine over its 200 issues. You know, so many of them, because the magazine is a kind of snapshot of the culture and the voices of the culture, to watch them go was to watch the kind of end of an era. And it's once again, a great privilege and honour to be in charge of a masthead that is trying to capture that era. So that relationship was kind of foremost in my mind. And Mungo's essay in that first issue, and characteristically Mungo, uh, is reflecting on the magazines that he's written for that have died and speculating that perhaps he's a serial killer, um, having written for all of them. Uh, He's the common denominator, and so he's reflecting on the magazines that he has outlasted. Tragically, of course, Mungo hasn't outlasted the monthly, but we would hope that we can kind of honour the spirit of his writing and the kind of joy and energy and spark and pop and fizz in his voice for another 200 issues to come. Somewhat sadly, it's hard not to think of Mungo as a product of a bygone era. You know, the loss of Mungo is also the loss of a particular kind of journalistic voice. There are throwbacks to it here and there, but he epitomised a time when, you know, one of my least favourite things in the way we talk about media and politics now is insider's syndrome, the idea that, you know, everyone's kind of got a horse in the race and they're, they're as important a character in it as the people they're interviewing, the people they're profiling. Someone like Mungo epitomised insider culture at its best, you know, that he would sit and have the conversations with the subjects of the pieces he wrote about. He was deeply embedded in his community. He was deeply embedded in kind of local media um, and local journalism and that beat. But he also had a kind of long view and an affectionate, if cynical, view about our political leaders and about our general cultural thrust. For readers of Schwartz Media's various mastheads, you know, Mungo now will forever be remembered for the crosswords that he would write for the Saturday paper uh, in his final years. The man had range but he also had a deeply humane, deeply compassionate eye on everything that he wrote about. Well, Michael, finally, congratulations on the 200th issue. It's full of some incredible pieces, and I can't wait to hear you read this one from the archive. I'll try and do it justice, Scott. Coming up after the break, Michael will read From Nation to Now.
For Sloane Crosley, writing about the loss of a friend may not have provided catharsis, but it did allow for the possibility of a better ending. Like you have this amazing meal that's this friendship and then you have a really, 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 really bad dessert with shards of glass in it. And then like the book is like, you know, those little chunks of chocolate that come with the bill. I'm Michael Williams. Join me for this week's episode of Read This as I talk to Sloane Crosley about her latest Grief is for People. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. From Nation to Now by Mungo McCallum. When a new Australian magazine invites me to reminisce about old Australian magazines I've worked for, it has either a lot of courage or a shocking grasp of my history. True, I've written for so many weeklies, fortnightlies, monthlies and quarterlies over the years that an envious colleague once commented I had more columns than the Parthenon. But that's the good news. The bad news is they're all ex-magazines. I qualify as a serial killer. Prominent among the corpses are Oz Magazine, Richard Walsh, Richard Neville and Martin Sharp's post-undergraduate effort, actually not all that post, and Nation Review. In the years since and in between have come tumbling a clatter of offspring. Living Daylights, Neville's attempt at hippiedom, in which he wrote under the pseudonym Harry Gumboot. The National Times, Political Scandal Meets Lifestyle, Both Lose, under the upwardly mobile Max Sewich, Australian Left Review, Populists Trying to be Academic, Australian Society, Academics Trying to be Popular, Matilda, Satire and Scatology Inside Some Deceptively Picturesque Covers, The Independent Monthly, Sewage Returns, This Time Downwardly Mobile, The Republican, the best thing about which was Louisa, Mother of Henry, Lawson's old title, The Unicorn, local plagiarism with the owner absconding just in time, and the eye, biting and funny but hopelessly over-designed. Some were so fleeting that their names are forgotten. Others were actually aborted. After receiving my contributions, the editors failed to publish at all. The only truly long-term survivors have been the university papers, with their built-in subsidies and captive audiences, and the bulletin, which has constantly remade itself since the days of the founding editor, J.F. Archibald. If a year is a long time in politics, then 10 years is a lifetime for an Australian political magazine. One groundbreaking magazine, or independent journal of opinion, as it styled itself, actually lasted 14 years. Nation, published every fortnight from 1958 to 1972, was founded by Tom Fitzgerald, Undernourished by his day job as the Sydney Morning Herald's brilliant financial editor, Fitzgerald bankrolled Nation by mortgaging the family home and taking out a £5,000 loan. Filing cabinets were constructed from fruit boxes. My father, who wrote about TV, books and much else for Nation, described the upstairs office at 777B George Street, Sydney, as a room above an illegal abortionist in a grimy building near Railway Square. Once, when Nation extracted a chapter of Vladimir Nabokov's Lolita, federal security officers scoured the printery in search of the incendiary pages. They were hidden, its Adelaide correspondent Ken Inglis recalls, in a toilet system. Fitzgerald's chief collaborators were the drama critic Harry Kippax, with whom he conspired over coffee cups full of illegal claret at the King's Cross hangout Vadims, and more importantly George Munster, an enthusiast whose extraordinary ability as a researcher never quite compensated for the turgidity of his prose. The Fitzgerald-Munster partnership began one night at Lorenzini's, an Elizabeth Street wine and coffee bar, 
when the young Barry Humphrey said to Fitzgerald, I want you to meet a friend of mine who's a genius. Nation was always worthy and often provocative, but stayed firmly on the genteel side of outrageous and eventually ran out of puff. Its marriage to the unkempt Sunday Review in 1972 was always going to be fraught. Nation Review, otherwise known as The Ferret, existed on the faith, hope and especially charity of the transport millionaire Gordon Barton. Barton was an idealistic soul who genuinely thought that people of good intentions could make a difference. He was the founder of the Australia Party, a haven for liberal supporters who opposed the Vietnam War, and he believed in capitalism with a human, indeed angelic, face. His confidence, while naive, had a sublime quality. When a critic reminded him that the party was unlikely to survive without some kind of socio-economic base, Barton replied, I am its socio-economic base. Who knows what he felt about The Ferret? It was intended as a spin-off from the Australia Party, a sort of intellectual magnet for people interested in serious discussion of social and political reform. It became a larrikin and scurrilous vehicle for iconoclasm under Walsh's editorship, so far to the left of its proprietor that it looked like something from another planet. It was loosely based around a small group of established writers who had little in common except Olympian standards of alcohol consumption and a desire to see how far they could push journalism's boundaries. John Hepworth, Richard Beckett, alias Sam Orr, and myself were permanent staff. Bob Ellis was a frequent contributor. Joining us were a handful of younger and lesser-known cartoonists, Peter Nicholson, Patrick Cook, Victoria Roberts, Ross Batop, and the incomparable Michael Lunig, whose whimsical humanism leavened the often brutal prose of the writers. The rest of the pages were filled with endless green tirades and articles from such unlikely sources as Frank Knopfelmacher, the surly anti-communist academic. Nobody knew what would be in the paper until it came out, which, miraculously enough, until 1981, it invariably did. Working from Canberra, I was shielded from much of the weekly chaos, but on my occasional trips to Melbourne and later Sydney, I would stumble through a minefield of empty bottles and a haze of marijuana fumes to find Walsh, apparently unconcerned, concocting fictitious bylines for exposés submitted by disgruntled reporters who couldn't get them published by their regular employers. These were a fecund source of early copy, but less so as the establishment press dragged itself into the modern era, something for which Nation Review can take some credit. Walsh could be spectacularly miserly. Once, after inviting me to lunch, he insisted on dividing a $7.30 bill. Even so, Nation Review lost money in eight of its nine years. Munster, as co-editor, brought gravitas but also conflict. Some of us felt his approach was too serious amid the underlying unruliness. When Walsh left the building to become a distant publisher, the rows got more frequent and Munster more incomprehensible. Even in moments of clarity, he was something of a liability. An editorial proclaiming that Gough Whitlam was unfit to be Prime Minister provoked fury and disbelief from loyal readers. Eventually, the mild-mannered Peter Manning took over as sole editor, producing new tensions between Manning, a born-again feminist, and the less reverent males on staff. When Manning took a week off and Beckett produced an earthy splash on contemporary courtship, including phrases such as getting into her naughty bits and sinking the sausage, Manning attempted to sack him. The other old-timers were outraged. Something close to civil war broke out. The day of the ferret had passed. 
The National Times under sewage tried to balance investigative journalism with reviews of expensive wine. It was finally killed off in 1986. The largely satirical Matilda sank that same year under a bundle of libel actions. Its editor, Robbie Swan, was better known as a crusader for erotica, and some felt his habit of welcoming prospective advertisers in his alter ego of Caroline coming sweetly was counterproductive. In 1989, Sewich got another chance with the Independent Monthly, which went from a newspaper to a magazine and was supported by a truly odd couple of tycoons in James Fairfax and John Singleton. Seven years later, none of them profitable. It was gone too. Magazines are creatures of their times. Fashions change and backers either go broke or find new hobbies on which to lose their money. Even the best and most tenacious tend to wither and die. But it is hard to believe that there is not the market for a smart, uninhibited publication that defies the current convention and tells it like it is, or at least like it could be. In these bleak times, there's certainly the need. I only hope I haven't already strangled it at birth. To hear more Weekend Reads, you can subscribe to The Weekend Read in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.